Luke chapter 7. And we're going to look today at this account of a woman who anointed Jesus' feet with perfume and washed them with her tears. Uh, I I think I spoke on this maybe several years ago. Uh, It's one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Uh, And the message has changed quite a bit since then, so I don't feel too bad about sharing on it again this morning. When you read this, it's almost like watching a dramatic play kind of unfolding before your eyes. Uh, But before we actually look at the account itself, I want to first give you a reason why this particular passage is worthy of our special consideration here this morning. And it might strike you as strange, and maybe it should strike you as kind of strange every once in a while, that here we are in the United States, the year 2012, and we're getting ready to spend our time this morning talking about how some nameless woman on the other side of the world washed the feet of a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago. Why? And here's the answer. We were created, I was created, you were created to know the one true God and to be entranced and thrilled by and consumed with His glory. That is why you are here. It is the reason for your existence. And don't you feel that within your own heart? You have a longing within you for relationships. You can't escape it. You want to be known by others and to be loved by others and to be welcomed and accepted by others. And deep down, you want to know and to love in return. There's this longing in the heart of every person for relationship. And yes, sin has come in and it's twisted that and it's perverted that, but it came from God originally. It's from Him. It's something that He puts there. It's part of being created in God's image, this longing for relationship. And it's something that can only be satisfied by knowing Him, by knowing God and having a personal relationship with Him. But not only that, you were created for glory. You were. And isn't this obvious to us at times? I mean, why is it that people stand in awe before a sunset or a Van Gogh or a fireworks display? Why do people travel from one end of the country to the other to see the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone National Park? I mean, when families go on vacation, they don't drive into the middle of a cornfield and park there. Unless you grew up in Iowa like I did, and that's all there is there. (laughs) Well, kids, here we are. (laughs) No, where do people go if they can? They drive to the Rocky Mountains. They drive to the ocean. Why? Because they want to see glory. They want to see it. They crave it. And you're the same way. It's how we're wired. We long to be excited and thrilled and satisfied by glory. And that longing for glory can only be satisfied by the all-glorious God of the universe. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus in Luke chapter 7? Absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. You were created with a longing for a relationship that can only be satisfied by knowing God. But how can you know Him? Well, you can know Him through His Son the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus himself said in John chapter 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And then Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. And Jesus says to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And then again, John chapter 1, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, Jesus, 
who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him to us. No one's seen God at any time, but Jesus has explained him to us. So you can know God through Jesus, his son. But not only that, again, you were created with a longing for glory that can only be satisfied by the all-glorious God. But where can you see this glory of God? Well, you can see the glory of God by looking at Jesus, who is the Lord of glory. 2 Corinthians 4, God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where you see it. That's where you see his glory, in the face of Jesus Christ. And then Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is the radiance. Don't you love this? He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. He's the radiance. He's the outshining. He is the bright sunlight. He's the sunlight, the rays of God's glory shining out. So why are we going to spend our time this morning talking about how a nameless woman washed the feet of a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago? Well, because that Jewish carpenter is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. And because in him is found the fulfillment and satisfaction of the deepest longings of mankind, longings for relationship, longings for glory. And I trust we'll see that here as we dig into Luke 7. So Luke chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 31 and read all the way through verse 50. And then I'd like to go back through it again and kind of take it a chunk at a time and pick it apart. So Luke chapter 7, verse 31. Jesus is speaking here. He says, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. And they say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, this is Simon, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. So a denarii was a day's wage. So one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. 
For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now you'll notice that the account of the woman washing Jesus' feet here doesn't really begin until verse 36, but I had us begin in verse 31 because verses 31 through 35 provide the background and the introduction to the account that we're going to focus on here. Jesus begins in verse 31 with a rebuke directed towards what he calls the men of this generation. Well, who are these men? Well, it tells us in verse 30, it says, The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. And so then Jesus says, verse 31, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? He's talking about the lawyers and the Pharisees here. Now, the lawyers, of course, were the experts in the law. But who were these Pharisees? Well, I like the way that Adeline's children's Bible says this. He calls the Pharisees these extra super holy people. And I think that kind of gets it across, doesn't it? The extra super holy people. They were the hypocritical, self-righteous, religious people of the day who made a show of their religiosity and looked down their noses at everyone else. They would pray loudly on the street corners. And, you, I mean, we have to think about this. You're driving down Baltimore, and here on the street corners are these men, you know, and they're, and they're, pray, they're crying their eyes out, praying to God, and they look genuine, they look sincere, and they're there on the street corners with their arms raised in the air, crying out to God. But when they would pray, they would say things like this. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner over here. You see that? And so there they are on the street corners and they look all holy, but the things that they're praying are nothing but self-righteous, rotten things. The Pharisees would give money to the poor, but, but when they did it, they would sound a trumpet while they were doing it so that everyone would look at them and so that they could show off how generous they really were. Jesus called them hypocrites, fools, blind men, blind guides, whitewashed tombs, and serpents. How's that for a description? And here he says in verse 32, they are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep, for John the Baptist has come, eating no bread, drinking no wine. You say he has a demon. In other words, these Pharisees are like stubborn children who refuse to, to like anything that you do to try to please them. And you know how kids can be sometimes. You play them a happy song, they don't like it. You play them a dirge, a sad song, they don't like that either. It doesn't matter what you do, they're not going to be happy about it. And that's what Jesus is saying these Pharisees were like. John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he abstains from alcohol, and he fasts regularly from food, and the Pharisees say he has a demon. Then Jesus comes on the scene, and instead of abstaining from alcohol and food, he eats and drinks regularly, and the Pharisees don't like that either. And so they accuse him in verse 34 of being a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet Jesus says wisdom is vindicated verse 35, by all her children. Now, notice how this section then leads directly into this account of the woman washing Jesus' feet. God had Luke put this account of the woman washing his feet right here because he wants to illustrate for us just what it means that Jesus is a friend of sinners. 
This woman is specifically called a sinner. Verse 37, verse 39, she's specifically called a sinner. And so Jesus here is a friend of sinners. And this woman, in other words, Luke is saying, look, this woman is just such a sinner that Jesus is a friend to. But notice also, and this is something I don't think I've really seen clearly before, Notice also that Luke puts this account here because he wants to prove the truthfulness of Jesus' statement that wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Have you ever read that and wondered what is that talking about? Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. I think this is, I think this is what it means. I think this is the connection. Jesus is being accused here of acting in an unwise way. He's being accused of acting in an unwise way. I mean, the Pharisees are saying, what in the world is Jesus doing eating with tax collectors and sinners? What is he doing? Makes him look bad? Guilt by association? That's not wise. shouldn't be doing that. It's unwise for him. Not good. In fact, when you read the Gospels, this comes up over and over again, doesn't it? Constantly, over and over, the Pharisees are grumbling at Jesus or berating him. Why? Because he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Over and over again, you see that come up. In their mind, it is not a wise thing to do. But Jesus' response is, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Let me paraphrase that. The wisdom that compels me to spend time with sinners is shown to be good and right by the fruit it produces. You see that? So Luke inserts this account of this woman right here. Why? To prove the truthfulness of that statement. In other words, Luke is saying to us, do you want to know how right and wise it is for Jesus to spend time with sinners? you want to know how good of a thing that is? Do you want to see what good can come from it? Then let me tell you about a notorious sinner who was transformed into a lover of God because Jesus spent time with her. And then he puts that account right there, proving it. Let me show you how Jesus' wisdom in spending time with sinners is vindicated by the children who are the fruit of it. So wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. You want proof? Right here, this woman. The wisdom of Jesus in spending time with sinners is shown to be right and good by the fruit that is produced as a result of it. And this woman is the fruit of that. All right, so Luke begins in verse 36 with this Pharisee named Simon. This Pharisee invites Jesus over for a meal, and it says he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And just a couple of cultural notes here. First of all, this thing of reclining. When they would eat a meal together, they would recline at the table. They would actually lay down. You would kind of lay if the table was over here. The table was in front of you. You would recline forward like this. You'd lay down on the ground. So your head was, was near the table, obviously, and so your feet were kind of dangling behind you. And that helps a little bit to explain how this woman could wash Jesus' feet so easily the way that she did. But they would recline. It says they reclined at the table. Now, secondly, I want to point out that this place that this meal was taking part, this meal was taking place in was probably packed out. When you would have a guest like Jesus, I mean, Jesus was a guest of honor. People were curious about him. They wanted to be around him. And when you had a guest like that in your home, you wanted to invite as many people as you could because it made you look good. You know, come over. I'm having Jesus. He's the guest of honor. Come and, come and eat a meal with us. So it's very likely that this place was just packed out uh, during this time. Not only that, it was customary in the culture at this time to allow uninvited guests in to a dinner, dinner like this. And so you would have the table, and you'd have everybody sitting around the table who was actually invited. But then they would also kind of have the door open, and you could have beggars 
or just people that were wanting to hear the conversation. And they would come and they would line the walls around. They couldn't really enter in. They weren't supposed to enter in, but they could at least be there. You know, and have some leftover food from the table and hear the conversation. And as long as they weren't disturbing anything, it was fine. And they would kind of just line the walls around the outside. And one of these uninvited guests is a woman in the city who was a sinner, according to verse 37. Now, this doesn't come across in English very well, but the language that's used here implies that this woman was either a harlot or a prostitute. We might say that she was a woman of the city. And everyone knew it. She was notorious for that. Even Simon, you know, doesn't Jesus know who this woman is? I mean, everybody knew it. When this woman hears that Jesus is dining at Simon's house, she brings a jar of perfume and she barges in. And then verse 38, standing behind him, remember he's reclining, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. She was performing an act of worship, you see, sincere, heartfelt worship towards the Lord at this meal. But as you can imagine, it was a bit awkward having something like this go on right in the middle of dinner, and it was causing quite a scene. In verse 39, Simon basically says to himself, what in the world is Jesus doing letting this woman do this right in the middle of the dinner? Now look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. I mean, it's almost as if Simon is kind of embarrassed for Jesus. You know, it's like, what is he doing? Doesn't he know who this woman is? This is embarrassing. But Jesus goes on in the next few verses to explain what's really happening. And he starts by addressing Simon directly in verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. I have something to say to you. And when Jesus says that to you, you're in trouble. Because you know you're not getting out of there with your pride intact. I have something to say to you. Now, don't miss the implication of what's happening here. In verse 39, Simon says, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who this woman is right now Jesus doesn't come out and say Simon but I am a prophet but the way that he answers Simon proves that he is a prophet because he knew exactly what Simon was saying to himself and he also knows exactly who this woman is you see that in his answer that follows he proves in a roundabout way that he is a prophet exactly So Jesus has something to say to Simon about this woman. And in order to explain this woman's actions, Jesus uses an illustration. It's very simple, very easy to understand. Verses 41 to 43. A money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged Correctly. So it's a very simple illustration. This person owes a ton of money. This person owes a little money. If they're both forgiven of their debt, which one's going to love more? Well, the one that owed more. It's just a common, it's human, human nature, human experience. Very simple illustration to illustrate that, to show that. But then look at verses 44 through 48. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little." 
Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Now I want to stop here just a second to clarify something that's extremely important. Because it sounds like what Jesus is saying is, is that the reason why this woman was forgiven was because she loved much. It sounds like because she worshipped Jesus, because she came in and worshipped him, as a result of that then, Jesus forgives her. Okay, do you see that? Look what it says, verse 47. For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven for or because she loved much. You see that? It almost sounds like Jesus is saying, the reason why I'm forgiving her is because she showed me so much love. It almost sounds like salvation by works, in other words. But I don't think at all that's what Jesus is saying. It, I, I, I would say the wording is kind of odd. I'll give you that. But I, I, I know that's not what Jesus is teaching here. How do we know that? Well, first of all, we know because of the illustration he just got done using. In the illustration that he uses, you have people with debts, and their debts are completely forgiven up front, and then as a result of their forgiveness, they love. Okay? You see that? Secondly, we know, that's, we know Jesus isn't teaching salvation or forgiveness by works because of the second half of verse 47. Jesus says, he who is forgiven little loves little. He doesn't say he who loves little is forgiven little. You get that? The order, order matters. <laughs> he who is forgiven little as a result will love little. Forgiveness comes first, followed by the overflow of love. It's important to clarify that those kinds of things. In other words, I think what's happening here is this sinful woman did not come to wash Jesus' feet so that her sins would be forgiven. She came to wash Jesus' feet because her sins had already been forgiven on a previous occasion. Maybe she, was, maybe she was out there in the crowd that time when Jesus stood up and said, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Or maybe she was there when Jesus stood up and said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And she heard that, and she believed that. And she received forgiveness, and she knew she was forgiven. And so as a result then, she wants to go and find this one. She wants to worship this one who spoke such words to her. I think that's what's going on here. The worship that we're seeing here on the part of this woman is the result of the fact that she had heard Jesus sometime previous had believed his message, and now she's coming to worship the one that she loves. Because she's loving much, why? Because she had been forgiven much. Because she had been forgiven much. Whatever the case, the other people at the table didn't miss the audacity of what Jesus was saying. Again, verse 49, those who were, who were reclining with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? How in the world can he say that? Woman, your sins have been forgiven you. How can he say that? On another occasion, Jesus had forgiven someone of their sins, and the people in the crowd said in response, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can, do, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were right. But we need to think about how incredible of a statement this is. If I steal something from Dick... And I go and I ask forgiveness and, you know, Dick can forgive me. That makes sense because I sinned against him. I sin against him, he forgives me, okay? But if I steal from Dick and Jim hears about it and Jim calls me up and says, brother, I forgive you, I forgive you. It's like, what does Jim have? He doesn't have anything to do with it. He's not involved at all. He's not in the situation. You see that? 
So you can see, you can understand why these people at the table were like, "What is what's Jesus saying? This this is weird. Who can forgive sins but God alone?" And he's not even in the, he's not involved at all in what's going on here. But the fact of the matter is, he was involved in what was going on here. What's Jesus really saying here? What he's really saying is, is that this woman's sins, all of the sins that she had ever committed, were ultimately sins against him. That's what he's saying. In other words, what you really have here is a proof of Jesus' deity, that he is God. Think of what David said there in Psalm 51. After David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he had arranged for Uriah's murder, and then the prophet comes to him and he finally repents, and his, he writes Psalm 51 there as his testimony of repentance and forgiveness. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's not true. It's not true. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the whole nation of Israel by staying where he was when he should have gone out to war. I mean, on and on and on, right? But you see, the point is, is that all sin is ultimately against God himself. That's the ultimate reality of it. All of the sin that you commit, it's not about me stealing from Dick so much as it's me disobeying God and being accountable to him. All sin is ultimately against him. And so Jesus is saying, because your sins ultimately were, were against me, I can forgive you. I mean, he's saying, I, I am God. You're sin- I'm the one that you're sinning against, that you have sinned against, and I'm able to forgive you and pardon you. It's a proof of his deity, you see. And then the account ends with verse 50. He says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He's restored her to society. He's declared her clean in front of all of these people. Now he says, go, go in peace. And so again here we see that it was her faith that saved her, not her actions, not her worship, which confirms what we saw there above. All right, I know that was kind of tedious, but I think it's important to see the connections there with this passage. And so the rest of the time this morning, what I want to do is just bring out five brief lessons that we learn from this passage uh, regarding this woman and how Jesus relates to her and to Simon as well. So the first thing is this. The first lesson that we ought to take away is this. And if we, don't, if we miss this, we missed everything. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And that's the whole point of this, isn't it? I mean, he starts off, Jesus is called a friend of sinners. Luke puts this account right here to prove that fact, that he is a friend of sinners. So we've got to get this. This is a title that was given to Jesus by his enemies originally. It's what the Pharisees called him. But it's one of the most encouraging titles that we could ever want. Why? Because all of us here this morning are sinners. All of us here this morning are sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, all, all of us here this morning. And we need a friend, but not the kind of friend who will put his arm around us and tell us that everything's all right because everything is not all right. God is real, sin is real, the wrath of God against sin is real, and we need a friend of sinners who can actually deal with and take care of our sin, not just tell us, hey, smile, everything's going to be okay, because that's not true. It's a false gospel. We need the kind of friend of sinners who can actually take our sins and pay for those sins and bear them away to a, to a faraway place and bury them in the bottom of the ocean. They'll never be found again. And that's what Jesus does. That's what he did on that cross when he died in our place, bearing the punishment that our sins deserved, and he rose again on our behalf. And he has authority to forgive our sins if we'll just trust him. And that's what this woman did. She just trusted him. 
put her faith in him. And so the, the only question really for you here this morning is, do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you see yourself as a sinner? Jesus is a friend of sinners, but listen, he's a friend only to sinners. He is a friend of sinners, but he's a friend only to sinners. In another place, Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So if you're here this morning, you're thinking that you're righteous, sorry, he's not a friend to you. He only came to sinners. That's it. So do you see yourself as a sinner, or are you still trying to hold on to the filthy rags of your self-righteousness? I mean, it's ironic, isn't it? This Simon the Pharisee was just as much of a sinner as this prostitute was. But he looked down his nose at her, not realizing that in reality they were in the same boat. His was a different kind of sin, but it's sin that was just as evil. And we've got to get this because we can get insulated in in our church culture and we can forget that clean, moral living that is shot through with self-righteousness and pride will put a person in hell just as fast as immoral living ever will. We've got to remember that. We've got to get that. There are some people who never seem to get any help from God because they try to hold on to their pride and their self-righteousness. And it's only when they finally see that in God's eyes they're just as bad as any prostitute could ever be that God finally helps them and hears them and answers them and delivers them and saves them. You remember when Charlotte Washer gave her testimony, one of the things she said that God used was she was down there, I think it was in San Antonio actually, when Paul was speaking down there and they were doing an open air thing, And she was sitting out there, and she looked, and she saw a prostitute walking down the street. And God spoke to her, and he said, you're just as bad as that prostitute ever has been. Because she had always, you know, she was a church girl. She always thought herself to be righteous and clean and moral and everything else. Never saw her need, you see. God showed her, you're just as bad as she ever has been. But here's the wonderful thing. If you do know you're a sinner in desperate need of forgiveness, then you can go to him because he will not turn you away. He says, the one who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. So you don't have to clean up your act first. All you've got to do is just go to him. Just trust him. Believe him. That's all you've got to do. The one who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. All right, second lesson. Number two. A merely superficial acquaintance with Jesus is not enough to save you. I mean, you have to give Simon some credit here. While most of the other Pharisees were mocking Jesus, berating him at every turn, Simon at least had the decency to invite Jesus over for a meal. He even calls Jesus a good teacher, and he entertains the possibility that Jesus might even be a prophet. But ultimately, here's the key, ultimately there was no love in Simon's heart for the person of Christ. Read again verse 44 through 46. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. And see, it was what Jesus is bringing up here are things that were customary at this time that you would do for any guest that you have over. Guest comes over, you give them some water for their feet. Guest comes over, you give him a kiss on the cheek and greeting. These things that he's, they're not like extraordinary things that Simon would have had to go out of his way to do. These were just everyday, courteous kinds of things you did when you had a guest over to your house. And Simon didn't even do those. 
He said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. So you see, Simon was willing to be nice to Jesus. He's willing to have Jesus over for a meal, but there's no real love for Jesus in his heart. It's a scary thing, but it's possible to have all kinds of religion in your life, but no real love for the person of Christ himself. You can go to church, you can read the Bible, you can pray, you can give money, you can help your fellow man, you can give your body to be burned, Paul says. Isn't that incredible? The Pharisees did all of those things, and yet Jesus condemned them more than anyone else in the New Testament. So how about us here this morning? Is Jesus merely an accessory that we tack on to the very farthest corners of our lives? Is he someone we pick up on Sunday morning and put down again on Sunday afternoon? I saw a sign one time. It said, Jesus is not honored at all unless he is honored above all. I thought that was pretty good. Jesus will not settle for merely being an accessory that we tack on to our lives. It's like Vance Havner said, Jesus never comes second. He never comes second. He either gets it all or he gets nothing. The love he demands from his followers is absolute. And that leads to the third thing here. Number, lesson number three, a true Christian is an unashamed worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. A true Christian is an unashamed worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. To say it another way, every true Christian has entered into a personal, real love relationship with Jesus. And love for him just flows out of you and you can't help it. It just flows out of who you are. You cannot help but worship him. I mean, think of this woman here. She makes an absolute fool of herself in front of everyone at this meal. She looks like a fool in front of everybody. Why? Because she just has to find Jesus and worship him. She just has to. Can't stop it. It just flows out of her. She has to let it out. Paul says, Philippians 3, We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus. That's what she was doing here, glorying in Christ Jesus. She had to find this Jesus and worship him and put no confidence in the flesh. And so again I ask, is this true to our experience? I mean, this I'm, I'm not talking to you. This cuts me. I mean, this cuts me when I, when I think about what it really means to be a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ, unashamed, looking like a fool in front, in front of the world in order to worship the one that died for you, that loved you? Is there anything in us that just loves Jesus for who he is? Do you ever find yourself reading an account like this and just stopping and just saying, Lord, you are amazing. You are amazing. I mean, do you ever do that? There ought to be times like that. There ought to be. If our Christianity amounts to merely accepting a set of religious facts, then it's not the Christianity of the Bible. John 17, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, we're talking here about a love relationship with a real living and breathing person. Do we know anything about that? Do we know Jesus, or are we content merely to know about Jesus? Because there's a big difference between the two. Listen to Paul in Philippians 3. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss 
in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, this was Paul's mindset, that I might know him, that I might know him, that I might know him. Why am I, why am I enduring these things? Why am I going through the things that I'm going through? I mean, you read through 2 Corinthians, and you read the things that Paul went through, beatings and stonings and mockings and shipwrecks. Why? Paul says, so I can gain Christ, so I can know him. That's why he did it. That was the motivation. Every Christian is an unashamed worshiper of Jesus. You can't help it. Sometimes, we, sometimes there's things that we've got to break through to get there, but it's in there. That, the seed of that is in there. It just bubbles out of you. And even when you try to suppress it, you can't. You, know, you, hear something, you hear someone say something unkind or untruthful about Jesus, and it just... <laughs> it's like, don't go there. It just comes out of you. You want, you've, got, you've got to stick up for him. You've got to say something right. God has given you a new heart and put a new song in your mouth, and you can't help but praise him, even when it means looking like a fool in front of others. And, beloved, it will. You will look like a fool in front of others. You'll make sure of that. It's good for your pride. But even when you look like a fool in front of others, you refuse to stop worshiping him. All right, two more. Stick with me. Number four, I love this one. When the Lord saves someone, he often takes the tools of that person's former life and makes them instruments of worship unto him. I love this. The very things that this woman used to worship the Lord Jesus are the very things that she formerly used in her prostitution. Isn't that amazing? Think about this. The long hair that wiped the Savior's feet would have been worn down in public in order to let passerbys know that they could ask her, they could proposition her for illicit pleasure. The perfume that she used to anoint the Savior's feet was the very perfume that she would have formerly used to attract potential customers. But because of Jesus, the tools of her shame become tools of worship unto the Lord. How many times have we seen God do this with people? I mean, here's a person, maybe they're gifted in writing, they're a good poet, something like that. Here's a person who's very gifted in music. Here's a person who's gifted in art. And before they're Christians, they're, you know, maybe they're just kind of writing about worldly things, whatever, drawing pictures, painting worldly things, worldly music. And then God saves them. And what happens? It's like the, the very things that they were using to, to serve the devil, the very things they were using to enter into the world become the very things that Jesus Christ redeems and then uses and makes them tools of worship unto him. And so now they're, they're writing music unto the Lord, and they're, they're drawing pictures and painting beautiful paintings unto the Lord, and they're writing poetry unto the Lord. Some people are afraid to come to Christ because of what they'll have to give up. And it's true 
that Jesus demands everything. He says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it, will preserve it. It's true. You do, you do lose everything in that sense. But many, many times what God does is he takes those gifts and talents that the person is afraid of giving up. And rather than losing them completely, Christ takes those and he transforms them into instruments of worship and praise unto him. Rather than permanently lose them, the Christian finds his gifts and talents being used in a greater and more noble and more satisfying way than they ever could have been otherwise, to worship and serve God and to serve his people. What grace. And then lastly, the last thing I think we should learn from this passage, there's many more I'm sure, but number five, the Lord is not ashamed of his people. The Lord is not ashamed of his people. It says in Hebrews 2.11 that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. He's not ashamed to call us his brethren. Not ashamed to own us. Not ashamed to be attached to us. To be known as belonging to us. And I think we see a perfect illustration of that here in Luke chapter 7. Again, this was not a comfortable situation for anyone involved. I mean, here they are eating a meal... And this woman comes barging in, bawling her eyes out, and she starts wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. I mean, imagine us after, after the meeting, you're eating around the table, and this woman comes bawling in the door, barges in, just bawling her eyes out, and starts washing somebody's feet with her hair. I mean, that's uncomfortable. That's awkward. Okay? We don't have to pretend otherwise. It's awkward. But think again, not only that, but think again, let me remind you again, what kind of woman this was. As we saw earlier, she's described in such a way as to imply that she was a prostitute. Second, she goes into a house that she wasn't invited to after finding out that Jesus was going to be there. And instead of remaining quiet and away from the other guests against the wall, she walks right up to the guest of honor. She uses her hair to wipe his feet, even though a respectable religious woman at that time would have kept her head covered. A woman who had her hair exposed to public view was considered morally loose. And then fourthly, she anoints Jesus' feet with the very perfume that was a tool of the trade for her work as a prostitute. I mean, it's like she could not have done anything more to offend pretty much everybody there, in other words. I mean, we need to see that. Everything that she does is just wrong. She goes against every societal norm. She goes against every religious sensitivity that the people around that table had. Here's the thing, beloved. Instead of rebuking her, Jesus rebukes the self-righteous Pharisee instead. And he commends her. Isn't that amazing? What's he saying? He's saying he's not ashamed of his people. He's not ashamed to be called our brother. And that should be very encouraging to us, beloved, because the same Jesus in this account is the same Jesus that's seated right now on the throne of the universe, the same Jesus that we can boldly approach in prayer and praise, the same Jesus that every Christian has entered into a personal relationship with. And even though we're often like this woman in some ways, I mean, just ignorant, not knowing up from down sometimes, making a fool of Jesus, yet Jesus loves us because we are his. We belong to him. We belong to him. And he welcomes us into his presence. He bears with our weaknesses and our foolishness. He accepts the worship that we offer to him. 
And what more could a Christian want than to know that Jesus loves and accepts and desires your worship? I mean, what more could you want than that? How could you not love a Savior like that? How could you not desire to live for Him? I like the way Samuel Rutherford said, and there are so many quotes from him that are like this, just a man on fire with the love of Christ. But he said, Oh, how happy are they who get Christ for nothing. God send me no more for my part of paradise but Christ, and surely I will be rich enough and have as much heaven as the best of them if Christ will be my heaven. So that's all I want. Just give me Jesus. Give me Christ. Give me that, and I'm as rich as anybody could possibly be. And that woman, that's exactly her, that, that's what she was doing with her actions. She's saying, I don't care how I look. I don't care what these people think. Just give me Jesus. Give me Christ. And I will be as, I will be as rich as the richest person on the earth. All right, well, that's, that's all I had this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we just marvel afresh this morning at your grace, grace that forgives our full debt of sin, grace that welcomes us into your presence, grace that takes the very tools of our former life and transforms them into instruments of worship and praise and service unto you. Lord, all of it is a manifestation. It's a gift of your grace. We thank you for that this morning. We thank you for the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and we pray that you'd open our hearts to know more of that love in these days and that we would in turn overflow with that love for others around us. Help us, Lord. Help us in this mealtime to draw near to you, to fellowship with one another around these things. I pray you'd seal this word to our hearts. I pray you'd scatter the chaff, Lord, and help us to hold on to the weed. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.